This podcast is brought to you by Parked. Parked is a new comic about a group of people who work at a rundown roadside amusement park. Created by Matt Curley and Brennan Kahn, this new comic is coming out in May with pre-orders starting in March. Can't wait to see Parked? Be sure to follow us at Parked Comic on Instagram and Twitter. Now, on to the show. Should I be uncomfortable? No, it's not sexual. I've done literally nothing sexual. Yeah, just, I'm not that interesting. And also, this is so far off the rails. This is virtually unlistenable. the internet. My name is Danny Sklar, and I am your host, sitting here with my co-host, Deandre, you want to introduce yourself? We're doing last things, too. Cool. Yes. Um, hello. Google them. <laughs> Google them immediately. Find me on Instagram. Follow me. No, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Hi, I'm Deandra, and I'm here as well. Deandra is here as well, and this is Tales from the Set. This is a new podcast, our first episode, where we are going to talk to people who have worked on film, commercial, various types of sets in their life, and we are going to get into the nitty-gritty of what goes on there, the funny, the sad, the angry, the stuff that just happens on set that you wouldn't expect to that's actually more interesting than the things you film. Before we get started, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Danny. I've been working in production for about the last seven years on various sets, doing various jobs. Started as a PA, I've worked PA, Slate, AC, assistant director, second second before. A lot of different roles on a lot of different sets from commercials, independent movies, low budget TV shows, high budget TV shows, and they are all very similar. Um, Dee, why don't you give them a little rundown of your production background? Mine is far less extensive than Danny's. I went to school for theater, I grew up doing theater, so live performance is really my background. When it comes to production, I've had maybe two years of experience, and I would say about half the words that Danny just said that he's had his jobs in the past made no sense to me. So uh, that's where I'm at. Listen, um, I'm just here to be the entertainment to be the eye candy. The listeners can't see that, but like I said, find me on Instagram. All right, our first guest for the podcast is a pleasure to have this guy on. He is a good friend of me and DeAndre's. Actually, the only reason why DeAndre is even in this state, which is New York, it is our good friend Larry Larry. There's the last name again. We're just <laughs> dropping those last names ever. No, it's fine. You gotta you gotta give your Instagram handle if you're gonna say find me on Instagram. No, no, it's more fun this way. Okay. It's a challenge for them. <laughs> it's, a, it's a scavenger hunt. If you find me, you've earned it. All right, guys. So again, we are joined here with our friend, and I'm going to say his last name, even though he doesn't like it. Larry Lowry is joining us. want to make it clear that none of that applause was for me. You're a very supportive co-host. Thank you, DeAndre. We can tell from your voice what your hands sound like. (laughs) I love that my co-host has never worked on a set, didn't understand half of what I said. I didn't say never. I said not as much as you. I, uh, don't worry. My stories are for everyone. So, Larry, why don't you give us a quick background on how you got in the industry, where you started, and then we will uh, take from there. So, my first production job, you know, I always wanted to be in TV or working with TV or film or that kind of thing. I just knew I was built to handle cameras and and be kind of around them and in that atmosphere. My first production job ever was an internship with a small company in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where before I was even 21, I was making short public service announcements for, I was making short public service announcements for local news and local stations. So it was cool because I'd actually go out to shoot, I'd write script, storyboard my own stuff, and then I would have, be given a full professional crew 
uh, in a shoestring budget to make it happen, which was great and exciting, and it really solidified my love for being on set and kind of the set atmosphere. So you went right from doing nothing to kind of writing and producing PSAs for a local... Yeah, as an intern. Yeah, and so then I would help I would help the professional folk as kind of their PA in the office, and then they would... The, the stuff that didn't have a real budget that they were given kind of fell on me, which was nice, because it was just a staff of three other people and myself. Oh, wow. So let's get this right from the beginning. Is something you always knew you wanted to do. And For sure. And then you just found an internship that was interesting to you? Yep. And then from there, there was not a lot of steady work in Allentown, nor in Philadelphia where I was living. And I got an opportunity to move to Orlando for three years. And I was starting to work after about a year of like trying to get contacts and, and work into the industry. Then it very quickly snowballed into working for a lot of big entertainment companies down there. I did a lot of commercials. Commercials are huge in Orlando, and if anybody's listening to Orlando, I'm sure you've worked on a commercial before. I did a couple reality shows, which were equally awful, both experiences. And then I would do some television shows, some movies, like small movies, or even a couple like feature like support stuff, and a lot of travel channel stuff too, because it's a really beautiful uh, background to shoot in. Let's start from Orlando, because knowing yeah, like Orlando's production... Definitely, there's those, the interesting sets are yeah. all in Orlando. I will say the only interesting story that came out of Allentown was I had to do a PSA for Crohn's and colitis disease, which if you know anything about that, there's no nice way to talk about Crohn's and colitis disease. Really, everything I know about Crohn's and colitis disease is just nonstop fun. Yeah, well, yeah. Humor it's, beginning it's, to end. That's yeah. actually how people who suffer from Crohn's disease describe it as nonstop fun. That is what they, I mean. Shout out to my friend Andrew Hyman with Crohn's disease. His Love last you, name, too. There you go. Uh, yeah, his last out, name. Shout out to my friend Ashley who has Crohn's disease because yeah, she sh- loves it. Ashley Hyman, my, how you doing? <laughs> shout out to my boss Tracy who had it when I was not working at that she was a, a, another job boss not at the creative group I was working with but yeah yeah it was it's a terrible disease for sure uh, something that hopefully we can find a cure for but what also is equally challenging is to try to start a conversation about it in 30 seconds in a commercial break <laughs> it, it was very tricky and we had thankfully it was for a walk so I could focus on the walk and I basically was like I didn't say Crohn's and colitis if you don't know what it is Google it but in so many words <laughs> that's that's what I was kind of forced to do but now I want to go to uh, Orlando Orlando, Actually, yeah. what this I want to start with. So, the party starts. Most of the like production hubs, just so everyone knows, they're like throughout the country, most places, most big cities, there will be some small production company because there are some small chains or mom pop stores that need local commercials or local production. And major... you've got a news station in every single exactly. city. Exactly. Yeah. Every single, there's a local news affiliate where you could get started. So, if you're not in like a major hub, you could still always find an internship. It may not be as likely, it may be harder to get. But it is there. I didn't think, I forgot I worked news before I moved to Orlando. In between that internship, I worked at a news station. I was a camera guy. uh, And we shot the 5 o'clock, the 5.30, and the 6 o'clock news. And on my first day, the last news story was signing off was a local sheep gives birth to five lambs instead of three. And I was like, oh my God, how long do I have to be here for? (laughs) Can I ask you a quick question about your news? Yeah. You said you did the 5, 5.30, 6, and 6.30? No, the no 6.30. It was a 5, five o'clock show that went all through the, the Allentown area. And then there was a 5.30 show that just hit a town called, like, Wilkes-Barre, which was its own kind of, like, uh, area that I guess it was qualified enough to get its own station. And then the one that people really cared about was the 6 o'clock. And that was basically regurgitation of the 5 o'clock. So it just it was just nonstop. So fun three and shows back to sexy. back, and yeah. two of them were similar. 
Yeah. And I think we even abandoned traffic by the 6 o'clock. Like, that guy got to go home. Before we uh, do move on to Orlando, do you have any insights of what it's like to work in news? Because news is a very different animal than most sets and productions. Is, are we allowed to curse on thing. the show? Of course. Oh, okay. Okay. So there are my, children listening. My favorite part about working in news was I had this real young, like, chain-smoking, you know, maybe early 30s, late 20s uh, director who would direct the show. And, like, you know, it was one of those local shows that things got screwed up all the time on it. You know, the graphic isn't right, or, the, you know, I was in the wrong position for a shot, or the other guy working was in the wrong position for a shot. They just they just put on what they could shoot, and that was that. It was already, it was too small of a market to really need anything more. But whenever something would go wrong, and he had, like, a little bit of a lisp, whenever something would go wrong, in my headset, I would just hear him go, fuck Earth. <laughs> and, and that was, like... I didn't know what exactly the issue was because it could have been one of a myriad things, but I'd hear "fuck Earth," and so every time something went wrong, I would like start to like slide with my camera a little bit because I would laugh, which makes it worse, exponentially worse, if you're on the air. And That's look at you good. now, you made it so despite now, that hardship. But now, when I still do a mistake, I go "fuck Earth" in my head a little bit. <laughs> so you work camera mostly on this, on the news. entirely on that. Yeah, yeah, I did camera in studio, not even in the field. That's nice. Because, again, those are different jobs. Two very different things. Um, If you're in a studio, pretty much life is easy. There's not a lot of great studio stories, I think. No, and the interesting thing, though, is for news and most, like, in-studio, well, especially for news, everything's kind of live to tape, right? So that pretty much means you're seeing what is being filmed and, like, nothing more. There's no real editing. It's all kind of done live. It is done with a director in a control booth going, cut from camera A to B to C to something else like that. Um, and that is a very stressful and annoying job because they have to really look at two completely different monitors at the exact same time. Two. And figure at least two. Yeah, I was about to say it's probably more than that. Well, you have the live feed, you have your camera that is up next that you're about yeah. to flip over to, and then you have your other, depending on the studio, up to like, what, six or seven more cameras, depending and, on it. Yeah, sure, you could, you could have a ton. You could have yeah. as many as you need. Mm-hmm. And then as camera, it's pretty much whatever they tell you to do on uh, or the headset. You just do it. You point the camera at a big guy and hope it goes well, right? Or a woman. Yeah. Could yeah. be a woman anchor. It most likely. It's most likely a pretty looking anchor person. Yeah, there. that was some uh, subconscious sexism on my part. Yeah, I wouldn't describe the ladies as big. I wouldn't even describe the guys as big. <laughs> like they're, you, you know, you got to be good looking to be an anchor. Then why in my head is it like? I don't know. I'm like a five-year-old watching thinking, the news. You're thinking of a wrestling broadcast. You're thinking of what the WWE is. Point, that is point the camera at a big man and let it roll. I will say, though, the women wrestlers are much more impressive at this point. And, like, let's be fair, it's, I really like wrestling. Sure. That's for a different That's podcast. another production yeah. question. If anyone works at WWE, please come on. <laughs> All please six contact of you Danny with some free tickets. Thank you so much. I will take swag. <laughs> okay, so I just really wanted to move on to Orlando because... Mm-hmm. You said you moved there for an opportunity, right? Because you're in Pennsylvania at this point where you grew up. Yes. And, and the so major hubs are for production, L.A. and New York. L.A. and New York. But what's interesting about, and I guess you'd also consider now Atlanta, too. Mm-hmm. There's so much uh, main film work being shot in Atlanta besides the namesake show on FX. But what's interesting about Orlando, and I, it wasn't something I considered when I went down there, I moved because I had a house down there that I could go into, and it wasn't my parents' house. So that was my big drawing factor. But in Orlando, at one point in the 90s, with the Nickelodeon Studios and the Disney Studios, it was a, it was like a third hub of production. And so after those companies kind of moved on and, and closed up shop, the people who were working there 
you were really given a choice between either A, you move out to New York or, or Los Angeles, as you were saying, or you have the alternative, and a lot of people took it, since they were settled, they had wives, they had kids, they had families, they had roots in Orlando, and they stayed working in Orlando. So now it has this great, really talented, really experienced, very professional group of people who are kind of like nomads and will travel from Orlando because it's also so easy to get in and out of there, and they'll work other places and live there. So it's a great place to shoot. You, I got, you know, people who have shot films and people who have done big budget commercials and, and guys who work out of helicopters and all that stuff very quickly. I got to run with uh, big dogs way out of my league. Join us for our next podcast where we talk only about only, animated Only animals. famous animated dogs. <laughs> this is a promo for my podcast. You're listening to Famous Animated Dogs. And I'm the first guest. Do you know what? Let's go take next, a mini episode of that next right up, now. Next up. Larry, why don't you take us to the intro of this podcast? <laughs> They're dogs, and they're drawn, famous animated dogs. My name's Darry Dowry. Welcome, everybody, to Famous Animated Dogs. All right, I'm Lanny Sklar, and I am your first guest. Now, I just want to say my favorite animated dog It's probably Scooby. I really do like him. Scrappy's a bitch. Cool. You couldn't come up with a new animated dog. You know what? I was thinking about it, but like Scooby really is my favorite. I'm not joking. This is my idea. (laughs) I'm going to host this (laughs) fucking podcast. Fuck you. And it's just going to be called Fuck Garfield is the name of the show. Garfield's a cat. Exactly. That's that's (laughs) the point. I got the hook. And then you realize it's about the dogs. Oh, okay, gotcha. That's it's how you're an Odie man. It's an Odie support group, yeah. All right, that was the first uh, pilot episode <laughs> of... They're dogs! They're drawn! Drawn dogs! Famous animated dogs! So, you were a small dog, chihuahua, blah, blah, blah. Yes, running with much bigger dogs. Thank you, that was fucked. I didn't think that would spin into what it did. Anyway... So I got to work on set with very highly uh, skilled, highly trained, and very experienced people. But before who all that, had their own how did you? What was your first job in Orlando? I drove a safari truck for a nameless corporation that I don't want to bring up. <laughs> Both. Wow, your voice really changed. Yeah, you like were I, really excited I, I, about I the wasn't going to. Yeah. And then you kind of went to a dark place. Yeah. <laughs> how about this? I worked three times. What was your first production job in Orlando? My first production job was I had to do an overnight. Uh, photo shoot in a theme park and we had to document what was the easily the most boring of all of the attractions. It wasn't even really an attraction. It was like a, a thing that they set up for kids to learn and it was just it like was it was... No, no, no. It was school. Honestly, shooting a school would have been more... <laughs> No, no, no. That's not what we Don't Taking Taking pictures of a school would have been more interesting than taking pictures of these. It was like a, there was a... a a display about how banking works with a piggy bank, and uh, uh, you had to learn how a hurricane can tear a house down, and they were sponsored by all these companies, and it was just very boring, and I had to work my other job, my full-time job, all day, and then show up to that set at 9 o'clock at night and work it till 5 o'clock in the morning, and I had to do two back-to-back days doing that, and that was very hazardous to my health. I was falling asleep on the second night, and I was getting caught, and like, sleeping. I fell asleep on the coffee machine at Crafty, I was so tired. Crafty being craft services, for those of you who don't know, where we have all free food and drink. And I thought for sure they would never uh, hire me again. And then the company hired me back three or four months later. So enough that I was confident that I blew it. And I did uh, a month with them. Uh, A month-long gig was my next gig. So it was great. And by that time, I was sure uh, I had at least 
proven my chops. And so, that one's that. There's no stories from that. It sucked. It was not a good. It wasn't a good time. But I. But the thing about working on set is that I just love being around. I even love like I love pelican cases. Like just seeing pelican cases gets me excited. As far as like this is a cool thing to do. And for those of you not in the know, a pelican case is not a case in which you stuff a live pelican. It is Most a hardcover box that you have equipment in. Various yeah. equipment. That's really it. It's pretty much the this, the industry standard for moving gear. But I love, you know, I, I, I saw that on a St. Patrick's Day event that I was working at my other job, and they came and they, they filmed it. And so I got onto that one set by talking to people who were shooting this St. Patrick's Day event, and the Pelican case is like really, it had been about a year since I'd been on a set, and that was the moment where I just felt like this longing to, to get back into what I belong doing and, and to, like, how... That was the real clear moment that my life needed that drive. It needed that atmosphere. It needed those those people to kind of center me. And and I was you know I, it made me realize how much I missed it and how I how drastically I needed to get out of what I was currently doing. I would want to make fun of you for your love of pelican cases, but I also have a love for uh, apple boxes. Yeah, yeah, it's just that one thing. It's that thing that you see and and. You, and an Apple box, for those you know, is just it. a little wooden box that is used as, like, a multi-tool for, like, you know, you put a camera on it, you sit on it, you kneel on it, like, used for a lot. Um, I don't know why a wooden box is so valuable to a production, but every time I see it, I weirdly have the same feeling of, like, all right, I'm on a set. It's the thing nice. that defines set to you. Yeah. And I think that's important. Don't worry, guys. I will be around to make fun of both of you for both of those things later on, because I think it's weird. Why do you think that's weird? It's just unusual. Like, what do you think of when you see a film set or a, a, a TV set or whatever? Probably a boom mic. So that, But that's your thing, then. That's your thing. Yeah, but it doesn't, like, make me horny. Like, your guys' eyes just glazed over talking about your I didn't get cases. sexually aroused by pelican cases. <laughs> this is I, getting was... sexually aroused by pelican cases. <laughs> uh, but it was, it's, it's a thing that was exciting to me. And it was a, it's a thing that, that says you're on a set. It's that inclusivity thing. Like, you only see it if you know what it is. You know what I mean? Otherwise, it's a, it's a thing that most people won't pay attention to. It's a detail that people won't necessarily gravitate towards. But that's one of those things that defines I've now walked onto a working set as opposed to what otherwise would be a normal street. I completely agree with you because I think, you know, growing up before you actually work on a set and, you know, you see one in a movie or, you know, a TV show and it's just like kind of what you have in your mind on those things. There's a camera, there's a guy with a headset yelling and freaking out. But when you get to a set, you see how much more complex it is. Some shoots can be huge, some can be small. But there's all I'm these. Sorry, like, some sets can be what? I say huge weirdly, and I don't have any problem with it. <laughs> I am from Long Island. That is how I pronounce it. But yeah, I guess I, I kind like, of get what you're saying, though, because since I come from a more theater-based background, I guess that's how I feel about ghost lights. Mm. Sure, whatever the fuck those are. We're not talking theater. We're talking sets. Yeah, it's just a different kind of set. It's a, a ghost light is literally a, a good point. You lose. Dumb. Yeah, Theater a ghost light is literally a bare light bulb that's just on a stand that you leave on the on the stage before and after anything's happening. So why? So that nobody's walking around in the pitch blackness and tripping over things and falling know, that, off the edge. That of the sounds stage. like more fun to me. I was a stagehand for like five months, and there was a light bulb. I thought it was like a weird theater tradition. 
I didn't think there was a point yeah. to it. Theater's because, stupid. To be honest, so though. you don't hurt yourself when you're walking the around. The rest of the lights yeah. were also on. Everything. It was pointless. That's that's a little weird if the rest of the lights. So were that on. that's the thing. That's the difference between though a, a working television and a television production. Just just camera sets in general are entirely practical. There's nothing there for theater tradition. Like like. Everything in the theater is, you know, you can't say break a leg, you can't do it. There is no rule with the set. It's get the goddamn shot, and that's anything what that... What I'm hearing is there's less joy. No, there's nothing but joy. There's more... Well, because it's how do we get to happy hour the fastest? That's really the issue. <laughs> how do we call rap? How do we get to the martini shot? Because everyone... Not everyone. I won't say everyone. But a lot of drunks work in television, and that's the kind of people I enjoy hanging out with. That's the people I enjoy... That That's the creativity... That kind of sparks me and keeps me going. Yes, I've come to realize that. Since, yeah, I like uh, a good drink. Here, I'm now surrounded by alcoholics. So, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm going to make a case for not alcoholics of why you enjoy being on set. It's very interesting. Like you know, anyone who has a creative idea or thinks of something, you always think you're, like you're on your own. You always think like this creative idea or this outlet or this thing I'm pursuing is like this is just me. But then you get to a set and you see a bunch of people doing a bunch of different roles, all in the same goal to make one cohesive, creative, hopefully creative, thing. No, that's stupid. I'm just there for the open bar. Okay. So I'm there because of a love for the thing, and Larry's an alcoholic. (laughs) We're talking about the people who don't drink themselves to sleep at night. All right, guys. Welcome to Larry's Larry's Intervention. Larry's Intervention. (laughs) D, I believe you have a letter. Yeah. I do. Anyway, <laughs> but um, okay. So back to Orlando because we've taken a bunch of side stories. So you did this one job, and then you wound up working for this place for a, uh, a month later. Yeah, and that's and that's how it, it snowballed from there. It was just uh, you know the people I would meet on one gig would get me jobs. The next gig, just that's just how the industry operates. Once you start to do, once you have a little bit of success, and you do a good job once, that's really the only qualifier. Uh, do do a good job one time, and you will work for. A very, very long time off that alone. You get hired because of who you know, and then you get the next job by how you did. Like, it's really that simple. It's not an easy industry to break into, but if you do a good job on one set and you meet other people who are moving to another set, they're going to take you. Sure, I've heard that, but yeah. If you're a reliable PA, your producer is going to take you from set to set. Just because they need a PA, they need someone who's reliable. If they could trust you, it's as big a... I, I like to think of it as most of the world doesn't work all the time. That's my thing. But if you can, if you work well, if, if nobody needs you to be outstanding, they just need you to work. They just, just need do you to the be thing adequate. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> because most things go wrong most of the time. And so if you are not falling to that rule, that means then you at least do the job so it's it's passable. And if passable gets you gets you the next gig at least. And if you're great, then you're definitely going to get the next gig. But Aim to be mediocre, folks. I yeah. love that we, we brought Larry on because of how passionate he is about sets, and we've re- learned that he just cares about doing a mediocre job and really is only there for the bar. So I don't know how guess. in three years you've known me. You haven't figured out that's literally my M.O. <laughs> that's how I've been all the time about everything. Looking so forward. in uh, your time in Orlando production, do you have any specific memories or that uh, stick out? There's tons tons of stories. I mean, is there like a specific story you want? Because a lot of the stuff that we ended up doing was a lot of kids entertainment and a lot of kids commercials and that kind of thing. So when you work with kids, it's it's such a, you know, when you work with adults, you expect a level of professionalism and a degree of you know, you, you can have expectations out of adult actors. When it comes to kids, it's a crapshoot. 
and you hope that they're going to be on the best behavior and you hope that things are going to go well, but you have no idea how they're going to react. And you can't really get mad at them either because they're kids. And so the only thing you can really have is a backup. And you pull one of the kids who's an extra, it can come up and take the lines, and you put the other kid back into the extra kind of category. Have you ever done that? Yeah, absolutely. I've seen kids get replaced uh, on live sets. For sure. If one kid's if one kid can do the job, that's what I'm talking about. All we need is to get the job done. And if one kid is going to say the words that we need said on camera better than the other kid, then put that damn kid in there because it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Well, what matters is getting the... Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, there's no reason to be, you know, if this, if you're emotional or if you're, uh, you know, crying about it. And there, there's probably valid reasons. It could be a long day. It could be a hard work day. Sometimes you have to wrap early because of that, just because the, the kid has been doing fantastic and you just pushed him to the brink that day or her to the brink. And that, that's fine. You kind of budget that in your schedule. You account for it. And if you do that well, then you're going to have a great shoot. And you'll you'll have everything you need, and then some. And also, you know that you have to have a production, and a team of people working on the set who know that. I've worked with almost as many people who refuse to work on kids productions for those reasons, as I've worked with people in kids productions. Working with kids, do you have any interesting stories? Yeah, man. There was a my favorite story of of any of these kids was there was a, a morning. First off, that actually there's two. It, this the whole shoot was a disaster it was at a hotel and we were trying to shoot a family and the family was casted like there, there was casted actors and there was they were supposed to look like a natural family and so for whatever reason and none of us knew this until the day the family showed up we had shot a different family the day before we were going to shoot a different film. family we were going to film a different family no families were being murdered it's fine like listen <laughs> we're going to say shot and shoot i'm not going to just clarify vernacular it's just how i talk but there was one fa- you know so there were three or four families consecutively and it was a different day each family so we all go to set one day, and then everybody gets their call time when they're supposed to show up to set earlier than when the talent shows up. And then the talent family shows up, and it's like, I think it's boy and girl or just maybe one kid. And they it might be one kid on camera, and they have a second kid who's not going to work. And the mom and the dad were casted. And so the mom and the dad are casted, and it's not the mom and the dad who match up in the pictures. And so, like, the, the director and the, the, the producer kind of gather around, and they're like, this isn't who we casted. Where are these two people? You're not mom and dad. This is mom and dad. Who are these two people? And the dad goes, that's my brother and his wife. (laughs) And nobody asked. It was the aunt and uncle who brought the kid to the casting, the the casting day. And so they, they, no one said, are you the, the mother and the father of this child? They just said, are you the legal guardian? And they said, well, yeah, sure. We can sign for him. And that was it. And so the two other people didn't even know that they were casted in this commercial thinking that the mom and the dad were just going to go there and shoot it. So it was like a, a Thursday, and so they were both at their actual jobs in Tampa, which is about two hours outside of Orlando, and so they had to go send a production van to, to ask both of them to call out of work and take them two hours back to set. So everything just shut down before we even started. There was nothing we could do without the mom and the dad. Now, were the mom and dad that showed up to set, were they thinking they were casted? Yeah, because they said, hey, we want the, this kid and their mom and dad. <laughs> and so the, <laughs> the agent of the kid was like, then they want you two. And they went, okay. And I'm like, no one, no, I, I don't know how this didn't get put together, but no one at any point asked, are you their mother and father? 
they just, I guess, assumed, which... They were just like, do you know this kid? Yeah, which is what you get when you assume. (laughs) So these stage parents... And and the best part was, too, the the brother and his wife was exponentially better looking than the homely father and mother that showed up to say... So they couldn't shoot him. They were... It wasn't really, like, a situation where they could just, like, swap somebody in. It was... They casted the pretty good-looking brother and his pretty good-looking wife and not the kind of mediocre father and mother... (laughs) Of the pretty cute kid, like they were, they were overweight, pretty sloppily looking. They weren't like it's not what you wanted. It wasn't the image they were clearly going for. So the production had a four-hour delay. Correct. As you drove. Correct. Two and hours. I'm glad you figured out it was a four-hour delay because it was two hours to Tampa and two hours to bring them back. <laughs> so at this time, the kid starts to get real frustrated. The kid starts to get real fed up with everything, and is begging it because it's early morning. He he's begging for pancakes. I I don't to this day I don't know why he wanted pancakes so bad. So the production starts to panic. Like, now now everybody... The other thing that I love about production is when people go into panic mode, then the mistakes just become triplicate. What You took one mistake, and you're blown out of proportion, and you're making mistakes from the original mistake. So instead of correcting any of these issues, one PA is now driving two hours <laughs> to the west. The other four PAs, and I was kind of coordinating the PAs, they wanted to get these pancakes as soon as they possibly could. And so we were at a hotel... And the hotel kitchen wouldn't open for up like another hour. So one PA was going to the kitchen to try to just beg them to get uh, their chef or as they're, um, they were begging the chef to get uh, the, the kitchen open and just, just make these pancakes on the side. All we need is like, you know, 10 or 15 for this one kid kind of thing. Just make as many pancakes as you can. Another 15 PA, pancakes. Well, here's why I say kid. this. Here's why I say it because I think they wanted to feed the family. Then another kid was sent to IHOP just right <laughs> off the bat because they said whatever gets because the kid's screaming crying he's miserable they can't do anything with this kid and then one of the other PAs was like well I, I could make pancakes and so they used some of the stuff <laughs> in the hotel to start making pancakes in the working kitchen since it was an actual hotel room so those are the pancakes that finish up the fastest and this kid's just making as many pancakes as they can to just feed like the you know to keep sending them to the, the kid they have extra they figured they'll feed the crew with the four hours <laughs> that they're now going to be sitting around for then the kid from the kitchen comes back with all the pancakes and the chef was like hey don't just settle for as many pancakes as the family let's make a bunch more in case they were hungrier for more so he brings like another 30 pancakes then everybody forgot about the ihop kid so in about another 45 minutes another kid shows up <laughs> with three massive bags of IHOP pancakes. <laughs> and there were so many pancakes on this set that as we're jumping from room to room in all these different hotel rooms we had to work in, I had to wrap out the, the rooms at the end of the night and go through and clean them and, and fix all the trash and all that kind of stuff. And I found almost every pancake. I definitely found every pancake that wasn't eaten. There were pancakes in the cabinets. There were pancakes in the sink. There were pancakes on top of the fridges. There was just pan- there were some pancakes that were half eaten. There were some pancakes that only had like one or two bites and the people like they just moved on. There were pancakes that were just like melting in their own syrup. There were so many pancakes. And so then like we would, I, it was me and another guy cleaning out, and I would come out of a room and I just tossed all these pancakes, and he would open up the door in the next room and go. Oh my God! You got to see how many pancakes are in this room. Every single room was just covered in pancakes. This sounds like a dream, never-ending pancakes. <laughs> so, yeah, honestly. except all the pancakes were from about twelve hours previously. So oh no, nobody, nobody had a good time with the pancakes at the end of the night. But it was, it was to this day. I think about just the look on his face when he opens up the door and goes, "You got to see how many pancakes are in this room." After we just tossed out about thirty to forty. So what I love is a PA makes about a hundred pancakes. And IHOP gets another good amount, or there's 100 pancakes in total. Not to mention, don't forget about the kid who got the pancakes from the kitchen. 
And so there were three different There were three sets of pancakes. of pancakes delivered to... All, all of them were an egregious number of pancakes <laughs> during <laughs> the situation, and it was delivered to set three times. So during a four-hour I started. Break, I started crying laughing when I saw the kid show up with the IHOP bags. <laughs> I just, forgot he was gone. I just want to get this... Timeline figure it out. So during this four-hour hiatus, okay. So well, let's, let's PA say, had to. Let's say let's say call is it was like super early. I remember that. So let's say our call was four a.m. and it was like a five a.m. call. I, I, you know what? I'll say it was six a.m. call for the talent because I remember every, I remember ten o'clock being the time like nothing gets shot until ten o'clock. So yes, so it's a six a.m. call time. These, this family shows up at six a.m. ready to go. The whole set's prepped and ready. And then we realized the parent issue. We, we hit the parent trap. So wait, these kids, it's not even like they were working. It's 6 a.m. They're probably asleep. Right. Well, this is the thing with kids, yeah. And I don't think they were great kids to begin with. No, I'm not with, talking about so. the kid. I'm talking about the, the parents. parents. Oh, sure. The parents were. Oh, yeah. Oh, the aunt and uncle. Yeah, they had to call them up because they weren't Wake them up. getting ready for work for another hour or two. But problem one, you show up with ugly parents. Yeah. And Everything's so got to stop. We, lose, we, lose, we lost the whole van, too, to go get them. Like, that's, we needed that van. But I guess, thankfully, we didn't at the time because nothing was going to get shot. There was, there, by the time we were ready to shoot, people were hitting their, uh, their lunch, their oh, lunch uh, break, the, the time that they needed to take lunch legally. So then I think we had to put it off for another hour to do lunch. So was lunch just pancakes? No, we, there was lunch too because because it was supposed to be a normal shoot day. There weren't supposed to be several hundred pancakes on set, which is also why so many pancakes didn't get eaten because by the time IHOP showed up, they were thirty minutes out from lunch and nobody wanted pancakes. So then the actual shoot happens and that whole day, and then after the shoot is when you found all these pancakes. Yeah, yeah. So people were just I wasn't really the entire on the day. set because the rooms were so small that mostly it was just the the working crew. So there were pancakes just marinating all day in these hotel rooms. So uh, the reeked of syrup. Took a bunch of pancakes and just left them places. Yeah, it was it was grips. It was directors. It was anybody who was there was just munching on pancakes. I'm imagining pancakes flying back and forth across the room like frisbees (laughs) if they were on top of the fridge. No, but like that was like that's the thing. So like they just moved pancakes out of the shot as long as it wasn't in frame. (laughs) The pancakes weren't an issue. So somebody went pancakes and went out to the the dishwasher. Just get them out of here. They just put them wherever they could make sure that they were hidden. So that's why there were pancakes in the cabinets. Which of the three were the best pancakes? I didn't eat hardly any of the pancakes because we had just had breakfast. (laughs) We had our crew breakfast. So nobody wanted pancakes to begin with. So breakfast is at four. Yeah. So it's like set up and and you can grab the little buffet stuff. And and lunch is at ten. Yes, exactly. Pancakes were at six, six forty-five, and probably about (laughs) seven fifteen. And nothing was shot until ten. And then that's when lunch was at probably 10, 15, 10.30. Was the kid happy with all of his pancakes? The kid shut up, yeah. I don't know if he was happy or not. And I didn't, I didn't really care. Yeah, I think somebody smothered him with all the pancakes. They were yeah. annoyed that so many showed up. But that's it. And it's like, that. you know what? That's the day. But that's, so just because somebody wants, pan- yeah, and I don't, I don't argue with the decision to get pancakes for this kid. I do argue with, should we send all three PAs to make sure that this kid has pancakes? That's where I took my issue. So you're the key PA on this? Yes. And you're just kind of dealing, key PA... Just yes, and it was basically like it was one of those shoots where they didn't want to they didn't want to pay the production manager rate, so like I was like pretty much doing the production manager's job. Oh, even better. Yeah, so they just hired. They thought, why well, have a production manager when you can have five or six PAs? Pay them in pancakes. The pancakes were used as currency and bartering <laughs> tools on that day. It took uh, three weeks to get your rate, but you got one hundred fifty dollars yeah. in pancakes. Yes. <laughs> so is it just a one day shoot? 
that I mean that was one that was one of multiple days. I don't really remember as much on that shoot of the other days. I think things kind of went wrong, but I remember that was like the middle the middle of the shoot was the pancake day, and it was absolutely disastrous. I don't remember it being a good shoot otherwise, um, but the pancakes were a big a big deal breaker for a lot of people. <laughs> but it was completed. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the thing. The job always has to get done. You don't you don't show up there to not do the job. Everybody's you know, everybody is ready and willing because if you say you're not going to do the job, you're not going to get paid, and everybody wants their paycheck. It's true. Uh, the, I was only on set one time. Actually, I was on a couple. I was on a couple of shows that worked outside. So if the weather wasn't good, we were screwed. But there was one day I was on a show, and we were supposed to have a. Thanksgiving Day Parade type like joke and everything. Everyone is there. It's like our biggest day of the year. We have hundreds, literally hundreds of extras for different things to line the street. Um, turns out locations person never got us a permit to shoot there. Oh, that's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. So it took about two hours in while everyone's there setting up, signing in other people. I was the set PA, so there like until we were getting ready to shoot, there wasn't much for me to do. I was just hanging out. Um, and then no one just showed up. So, like, basically, we, our location scout went to try and find a new location halfway through, was unable to do it. Halfway into when we were supposed to be filming, they were just like, well, that's it for the day. We'll give you guys a call in a couple weeks when we have to do this again. Uh, luckily, since we were already there, they have to pay us. But, like, yep. it's so funny that just one small thing, like you were saying, can derail a whole shoot. Yours was a kid needing pancakes. Oh, yeah. I and mean, ugly parents. Don't forget about that. And ugly parents. Yeah, that was a... That was a <laughs> it's really the ugly parents. That was, a double, that was a double play of mistakes. It was the kids should not have had such good-looking aunts and uncles. And mine was just uh, a location manager forgets a permit, I mean, but that's and we the have thing, 400 that's like, people sitting there. That's the one thing you have to do in that job. I just think it's, like, somewhat of a... Production and filming is somewhat of a Rube Goldberg device where if one person kind of messes up their job, doesn't matter how small it may seem, it's not going to be the end product that you want or we're going for. I remember, it. I remember there was one shoot that they... So the other thing is, too, that I had to do a lot was load up gear into vans. Box trucks. I had, to, I had to load up gear into a lot of box trucks. And I was loading up a box truck and somebody forgot a cake. And that was like the key prop was this cake. And so... Everybody was in a rush to get the cake, and like I, I was still on time to get this box truck out. Like I had to put the gear in, and they started calling me. You need to get the cake to set. You need to get the cake to set. You need to get the cake to set. So the the problem is, is whenever you're on a set and there's an issue that comes up, everybody loses their rational brains in order to fix this one issue. So I'm trying to load up all this gear, and I think there's a bunch of chairs, and I think there's some some camera gear and stuff. And so I was about to, like, load it all up and secure it, and they called me, and they're like, just get it here as soon as you possibly can. Make sure the cake is fine and get it here as soon as you can. So I said, I'm not, I, like, I need to tie everything down. They said, don't even worry about that. It's only, like, five, ten minutes away. Like, just drive. So I was like, okay. So I get <laughs> I get to set, and I pull up, and, I, like, as I'm pulling up, like, all the, the guys who were waiting for the gear, they open up the back of the truck, and I'm coming out of the cab with the cake, and all of the gear is just all over the truck like there's chairs piled on top of cameras piled on top of lights everything is just all over the place there's uh the, the 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 cord mats that you can hide cords in everything is just spread all over the place and they go larry what the hell the gear's all over the place and i just walked out and i'm holding i'm holding a cake about the size of myself and i go 
yeah, but the cake's good. And no, <laughs> nobody at that moment cared about the cake as much. But the funny thing is, that is the most important thing. That was it. I mean, my boss was very happy. The person who paid me was super happy I got the cake to set in one piece. It was just that the grips and the electrics and all those guys were not as super stoked at the state of the van they had to pull apart. Or That's truck. important. Yeah. Everyone's going to care about their department. But that's like, like I always, I would always make fun of, I couldn't stand, so there, you got two, you got two types of people, I think, really, on a set. There's the people who come up to set and know that not everybody has had the exact same experience you did working in the field, and that everybody comes from different backgrounds, and everybody's here to do a good job and work as a team. Then you guys have the miserable old curs who want to, you know, put people down, and they're trying to keep it, you know, the production world elite, and these really tough, old, like, haggard chain-smoking dudes who life was unfair and cruel to them, and they're going to make you pay for it. And so those were always the grips that used, like, all the made-up terms. There's a lot of, like, made-up terms for different things on set, like calling, uh, like, a rug a blanket and all this kind of stuff, like, whatever they wanted to do. So I started to get pissed off that I wouldn't know, you know, put a flibbity-gibbet on the hoobie what's-it. And so I started to make up other terms for them to screw with them back. And so they'll be like, yeah, I need a, I need a, like, they would talk about, there was always the, the condom on a on a dingbat or something like that. And I said, what? And they'd go, oh, it's... And then they, you'd say what, and you'd waste time. they they repeat the sentence in the code word that they know. And then they would prove that you don't know the code. And so then they would make you feel stupid because now you've, you've uh, admitted that you don't know as much as they do. And so they would just explain to you in simple English what the two objects they need combined are. And so my response was always, oh... That's a, That's what you're talking about? I thought that was a doofle door on a fizz bitch. And I would just make up my own words. And then he would shut up. And they would go, wait, what? And I go, yeah, well, last set I worked on, like, that was a Dusseldorf. And they called that a fizz bitch. <laughs> and, and they'd go, oh, oh, all right, all right. And so then they'd be like, uh, we need, you know, a, a caboose on a, on a Kathmandu combined with a wingle woggle or whatever it was, you know, kind of thing. I'd be like, oh, no, no, no. You want... A skyrocket that's on its way to the moon, <laughs> you know, put inside of a paddy wagon, rolling down the hill kind of thing. And they'd be like, yeah, sure, that, whatever. And I'd be like, yeah, all right, I got you, no problem. And i go, you just, the thing I would say is, you just got to be clear. You just got to be clear what you want until they would just stop using it because they all thought I learned like some second production language. And it was just me screwing with these old haggard men. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. It seems like I would say about 50% of grips and electrics. Yeah, grips and electrics. I mean, like, listen, they got they got a bad job. You know, this is coming from a PA, now producer, so I can sit on my high horse and make fun of them. But, like, when I was, you know, it's, it's an ugly, dirty job that somebody has to do. So I'm glad they're doing it, not me. And they do it usually so well. Like, it, there's they, a lot of... They do it well, but you don't need to be... You don't need to put other people down in the process of doing your job decently. That's true, and unfortunately that does happen a lot on sets, because sets, there is a very strict hierarchy. Of sure. Like, and there's a lot of people who believe very adamantly that they could treat you like absolute shit because you are one step below them on the hierarchy. And the unfortunate thing is, they can. Like, unless you have the... It all really comes from the showrunner, or the whoever the director or production manager is. No. There's a lot of I disagree. No, what I mean that. is they set the just, standard. It doesn't matter. I really don't think. Well, it, what like, I mean is they don't. Angry care. dudes are angry dudes are angry dudes. They're just not even the best production manager. The best because it's usually the production managers who are hiring them. Mm-hmm. You know, the creative people aren't necessarily going onto a set and being able to say I'm what this guy and that guy. But it's just yeah, dude. Some people have a, a, a thing to prove or, or it's a very 
it's it's blue collar to a fault yeah. in some ways that they're they're trying to show how much they know or how good they are at their jobs and how and I guess they're trying to create their own job security yeah. but it's a it's a bad way to go about it it's a bad look it is and um, unfortunately it's just sometimes you find yourself working for someone who needs to take out their stress and their anger and you're their PA so it just kind of makes sense to them yeah and it's very unfortunate and that's I mean when you talk about like dealing with personalities that's just something you have to learn how to deal with and, and figure out who's the ones that you work best with um, like I can tell a story about my production manager who I, I just I love him to death I think he's absolutely brilliant I think he's a he's a mad man but he's he's genius his, his name's Nate McMahon and I'll send this to him I guess if, if it makes it but um he, he he would on sets repeatedly call himself a dark lord whether or not you needed his help like there are moments where where you'd go like hey Nate I need this decision made he go I'm a dark lord <laughs> and you go alright I'll take care of it myself I learned how to do so much on on sets because Nate would decry Nate would claim that he's a dark lord and I would be like, okay, that means he's got he's dealing with something else. Like he's got other stuff on his mind. And usually he was working. This was just his thing of being like, I don't have enough time to be. And it's just that language that working with him enough was never communicated, but I figured it out. And I'll never forget to one time we lost, we had, we were on a set and we had um uh golf carts and we had all these different golf carts running, but we lost one seat, which is several times we have to leave someone on the production back because Nate had attached a skeleton to the golf cart with a light inside of himself named Bob and he put a security vest on him and he gave him got like a lot of resources so you didn't lose from the production seat. it you was just this guy decided to take over a seat with the skeleton the skeleton Bob like like I Bob like needed a ride sometimes Nate would drive sometimes somebody else wouldn't go no no Bob doesn't. like he was secured to the seat with his hand on the on the pole locked in with fasteners and 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 rope and stuff. What like was this was, guy's position on set? Nate's know? a production manager, and he's, he's <laughs> listen. He's one of the best I've ever worked how for. How did like, he have time to do that? That's impressive. I don't know. I don't know how he does anything, but it always gets done, and it's always a blast. Because like I, I feel like you'll say the same. Like I don't production manager. They don't have a second to really breathe. It's planning the next thing, seeing over, seeing what's going on, and like they don't like you. I don't know if you know. It's like I've seen grips and electrics who are doing, like, really intricate stuff, and I'm like, oh, my God, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're setting up a ping-pong table and a hammock for the back of our truck. <laughs> and that was the most I've seen them work that day. Yep. And it was amazing. I took a nap in the hammock. If that's what it takes, man. But, like, a pro- the fact that a production manager has enough time or is just crazy enough goes, I'm going to put a skeleton on a golf cart. Also, a production manager would be the one guy that would be really pissed about losing a seat Correct. on a golf cart. Correct. He just he just set the precedent, and then it was it was it, it was it was a working style that I was very comfortable with. I was very familiar with. I was very successful under him. Well, that's fantastic. It's kind of an older you, honestly. Uh, it's it's what I aspire to be one day. And I mean, he had his mind, like you couldn't knock that there wasn't something going on upstairs. The man had a master's in psychology. Like it was all, it's all there, but him or Bob, him, him, the Bob the skeleton did not. I don't know what happened to Bob. I do remember at another shoot, his hand came back, but not the rest of his body, and so his hand was just being thrown into trucks and that kind of thing. Was this a like? I, I'm sorry, I'm really hung up on the skeleton. Was it a prop? Was it just something that he the brought PM it. had? He brought it, and he used he had, he put like a, a set lantern inside of his chest. So Bob was always illuminated, too. It was great. You could see Bob from almost anywhere on set, which was actually helpful to find the golf cart, but I don't think that was his intention. I think that was a side effect, not a cause. 
Uh, I'm gonna need some more information about what happened to Bob. If you could reach out, I don't to know. Me yeah, just, okay, I can follow up and just get, get Bob's some story. Info. Yeah, yeah. I'll if let you anyone know where Bob lives today, and out there listening knows what happened to Bob the skeleton, we're really um, concerned. Yeah, let us know, Curly. <laughs> if your wife knows what happened to Bob, <laughs> please let us know. This is important. So you worked in Orlando for in production for about three years. Yeah, and then you decide to make a transition to more of a. Yeah, I mean, I knew I wasn't. I was a PA on a on the production management side, and I knew that wasn't for me. And I knew I wanted to do creative work, and so eventually I just started putting out for any sort of jobs. And when I finally had the opportunity to get uh, an associate producer job, I just lied about what I did, and I just you know I knew there was no way to double check with all the different sets I'd worked on. But I'd seen creative people, I'd seen directors in their field, and being the youngest on set so frequently, I was given you know this was at the rise of. The idea of picking up content just for social media and just for, you know, uh, Facebook and YouTube and that kind of thing. They would shoot stuff for YouTube, but, you know, Snapchat was was just at its burgeoning phase kind of thing. So I was the only one who had it on my phone and knew how to use it, and so I would shoot that stuff for people too. And so I, I kind of took that approach into why I know I can, you know, be a producer, but it was a lot of... Those were the guys who I was looking at on set. Those were the guys who I related to as far as stuff that I wanted to be doing. Like, they had the dream job. And so I just talked about what they did, and I knew I could recreate that in my own way when I was given the opportunity, and that's exactly what I did. That's amazing. D, you've known Larry for a long time, and you knew him during his Orlando phase. Too long, yes. I've known him for too long. Those are the words you're looking are, for. That's the exact specific amount of time. <laughs> it's not what I was looking for, but it's a nice insight to your relationship. <laughs> but in your opinion, from someone who's known Larry, what was the difference in like seeing him working sets so like now, is it the same exact person? Is it different stress? Like just from an outsider's perspective on how the different working environments affect the person. You know what's funny? I don't know how I want you to answer that. <laughs> I'm excited to see this. It's all right. I don't know how I'm going to answer it either. So it'll be a surprise for both of us. Um, I didn't see Larry working on sets a lot, actually, um, because we had we started off at the same job in Orlando and then our paths kind of split. So the year that we lived together, I would see him come home from set a lot and pass out on his uh, mattress on the floor. Three years. Never never got a bed frame. Yeah. Is that true? Yep. Box 100%. spring on a mattress. Beautiful. Like a glorified <laughs> futon. That is um, the most PA thing I've ever heard. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was, it was like... A, Both Pennsylvania. Somebody... <laughs> It was like a PA that was also a college student, yep. perpetually. But yeah, I always saw him like, he would always have fun stories, like he was having fun, he really liked the people that he worked with. Um, he definitely liked that job a lot more than his day job, so that was kind of like his happy place, which was nice to see. So that hasn't changed at all. He went from PA to producer, but he's still a pain in my ass. But like, mm-hmm. he's doing what he loves, and that's that's all that matters. Yeah. 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 Speaking of doing what you love, you brought up a very interesting point about having a day job while pursuing a production career. Like, how difficult was that to balance? Yeah, I mean, you have to have... I, one of the things that was uh, great about the job that I was working... Was, I was very clear with the, the two jobs I had to work before I got into production, that whenever I was hired, I was like, listen, I'm going to do the best job I can possibly do for you. When I'm here, I'm, I'm on the clock, I'm, I'm focused, I'm in the zone... I said, I don't want to do this forever. Because some people, there were people who wanted to make careers out of other things. And, and I was, again, it was like being lumped in the production management phase of stuff where I knew that wasn't where I needed to land, but it was paying the rent for today. And so that's a different thing. My, my, my 
fear was always, how am I going to get my rent paid? So what am I doing? A. And then my second full-time job was always, how do I get to do what I want to do? And so even when I was a, a PA on set, my second full-time job was finding a creative job to jump into from there that I could use to parlay it and move up. So when I was doing the other jobs, the day jobs, trying to get into production, I was very clear with my management that, you know, I'm here to do a good job and I'm here to, to work for you and I, I want to be as good an, an employee for you guys as I can be. I'm not really interested in any leadership goals. I'm not really interested in, in doing a lot of... Uh, I will, I'll help out with some external stuff or, or entertainment or writing or, or shooting kind of stuff, but, like, that's... Do you know anybody in this field? Do you know anybody working for around you that can be my lead into that? And people appreciated... People appreciated the good job that he did. You know, I followed through with my word, and I, I worked hard for when I was working. And they also kind of promised that, hey, listen, I can't help you with it because production can be such a, a club to get into, such an, an exclusive thing. A lot of people don't know people who work in the field. And so the one thing a lot of people... or The one thing my managers tended to do would say, listen, I can't get you there, but do a good job, and I'll never, I'll never be the person who holds you back from an opportunity or who closes a door. And and so that's what I, you know, I kind of took that challenge and I said, so it's up to me to be able to come back to them and say, all you need to do is, is just give me the time off to be able to do this. And at my second job, it became a real, they were the they were the ones who, you know, they let me go for uh, the, the, that's where I was working the overnight. The first job was never really a factor. The second job, I was doing the overnight and working there during the day and then doing the shoots overnight. They let me go for a month to be able to dedicate to the production and they gave me a place to come back to, which I was super grateful about. And after doing that for about six months, eventually they kind of turned back to me and went, listen, we love you. We'd be glad to have you. But now you're starting to impact our operation a little bit. It's it's not as easy as it is for us to just let you. As, as you're getting more work, it's not as easy as it is for us to keep you and to bring you back again and again and again and again. And they were dropping some of my shifts at the last possible minute. And so I'm super grateful to... Uh, those managers, Jennifer and Phil, for letting me be able to kind of pursue that. And they also they also look good, too, because they're like, hey, look, we've got a guy who does this during the day, and he's even doing, you know, our operation could let him go do this, too. Like, we can handle both. It makes them look good as managers, um, which is great. But eventually, I they, they were kind of like, we, we're reaching a breaking point here. And so before anything happened, I was like, I understood. And I went back to the people who were, I went back to a couple of different production crews and was like, listen, like, no more, like, if I'm doing this, I'm in. Like, I, I was still very much in a, a test phase, you know what I mean? And I was like, you guys have seen me work for you long enough. You either, you know, kind of staff me up or treat me like I'm a staff member or, or a Lancer, and, and, or you're or I'm not, we're through. Like, you know what I mean? It's It's been, you've, I've given you six good months. I've only done good work. I've gotten better as I've stayed. You've seen me grow and develop, that kind of thing, so kind of put up or shut up. And sure as enough, Alan Ash, who's a very talented uh, production manager and producer, he does a lot of other events outside of Orlando as well, and he eventually, like the day I said that to him, he went, all right, yeah, you're with us now. And that was the end of it. It was just like a thing, like I hadn't brought it up before, and it wasn't, I didn't need to bring it up until I did, and when I did, it was a very natural time and a very uh, agreeable situation for him too, so he's great. A lot of people don't know is you don't just... Or most case scenario, a lot of jobs are freelance. You know, you right. work, commercial shoot may only be a couple of days, but they still need someone for those couple of days. And once that shoot is over, you may not have your next shoot lined up, so you still need a source of income. So it is extremely challenging to pursue your dream while still just pursuing rent. Right. And it's uh, amazing that you were able to do that. And I'm very lucky. finally transitioned, too. Yeah. I'm very grateful for it. And... Uh... 
I'm very grateful for both the ability to do exactly what you just said, to be able to balance both, but also I had a lot of, it's important to find the people who you work best with who are going to champion you and be an advocate for you and to try to get you more gigs. Uh, people like Matt Garbera, Nicole Zemichnik, and Dana Conti, name drops there. Uh, they, they were great. They, they were just very early on. They, they knew that even though I didn't have the experience, I had kind of the right headspace and I could learn pretty quick. And, and the sincerity was there. And so that, I think, in the earliest of gigs, that got me through, you know, possibly banging a truck into a couple of walls, grating one up against a, a fence one time. There, I, there was a couple of screw up. One time I, I backed into a, a, one of the golf carts and just crushed it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was an early gig. And, like, somebody was parking me, too. It was just like... All right, it's parked, and they just pulled the golf cart off the other way. Like it was just like that's yeah, it's fine. Um, so there was there like there was definitely a uh, a learning curve that um, between them and my PA coordinator, my key PA uh, Wayne Hadaway, very much had to cover for me a lot of the time. And so you need that a little bit too. You need to be given a little bit of an opportunity to be able to make mistakes and feel safe to make mistakes. I think that's something that holds true in any career. Sure, but like not yeah. not accounting. No. To get that shit right. It's numbers. It's not going to change. It hasn't changed since the Egyptians built it, you know. They, they were able since to build pyramids. the Egyptians built numbers. Built numbers. I'm pretty sure that's... Larry Lowry, ladies and gentlemen. What is it? Is it, is it the <laughs> Larry's Arabs? also never heard of being audited, apparently. Yeah. The, the Arabs uh, invented algebra, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, the nomadic... If they can do algebra, you should be able to do your fucking taxes. Or my taxes, more like it. I pay you good money. Not me directly. No, but your brother. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's getting so real. It's very real. <laughs> but I, I've never, I have no complaints about him. He does my work. <laughs> so but that's just the thing where I'm like, that's not yeah. a place you get a lot of give. No. When you're in a creative field, I think you should, if you're working for the right place, they give you an opportunity to make mistakes and mm -hmm. forgive you generously. Yeah. I just think we are also in a, somewhat of an industry where I wouldn't say mistakes are built in, but there are a lot of changes. And there's more than one way to skin a cat, too. There's no wrong way to do a shoot, yeah. just like there's no right way. There's also, a, I guess, if anyone right, from PETA's listening, none of us have ever actually skinned a cat. The, no, but I'm, I mean, I'm I guess, against I guess, skinning yes. cats, but I don't like that. Hang on, Matt made a gesture, so he, I should rephrase that. It's not that there's there's no wrong way and there's no right way. There's probably no right way to skin there's, a cat. There's only, there's only wrong ways to do a production. There is no right way to do a production, I think. And it's just about getting a production as wrong as few times as possible. Yeah. But it's always going to happen. And that's, that's the tolerance that it takes to work on a set. It's true. And it's also knowing what set you're working on. It knows if you're working on a gorilla, if you have a big budget, and if there's like six people. Sure. <laughs> Sometimes it's a, a combination of all of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird when you have a really high budget show and then it's you and six other people walking around the street. It's weird. All right. But like before, so now we have you, you moved to New York to work as a producer. Right. And you've had shoots now. And like now when you go on a shoot, you go in it from a different perspective. Sure, so now I'm coming at it from a creative side and I have my own PAs to work for me and I have camera guys who are answering me and I have audio guys who are answering me, which is interesting. I have a production manager to support me. Um, so it, it does, it is that moment, you know, you kind of stand there and you realize you're, you're, the atmosphere is still the same. You know what a set looks like. You know, what, you know what, uh, what's gonna happen. You know the rhythms and the flow of a set and how a production works, but all of a sudden you're wearing somebody else's shoes. Mm -hmm. And it's that's an interesting dynamic that you have to. It's very much a time to put up or shut up. Just like I kind of lied my way into the job, and it's like very quickly people are going to realize whether I was telling the truth or not, whether I was whether I was delivering on promises or whether I was just bullshitting. 
And so the difference was, I, I really do think I delivered on it. There, there's that moment of you, I remember, there's the moment of, on my first set in New York, I was put into that different position. I kind of took the deep breath and was like, all right, fake it. And you start by faking good habits you saw people you enjoy work with doing until those good habits become your own, and that's just how you are as a producer, I think. Steal from those who inspire you. Yeah, sure. As I've stolen from you, as you know that. Yeah. Money included. Um, <laughs> I'm going to need that back, by the way. <laughs> no, you'll get it. It's You didn't pay for your taxes. <laughs> but on like that level of now that you're a producer working on sets... Is there a different level of connection you feel to the material rather than when you're a PA? Or is it more all of like the same, like, this is what we're doing, this is what needs to like be finished? There, there's a, a, a pride and a level of care that I have that's greater than when I was a PA, but I still don't try to connect myself to the material because so much material you end up working on is team-based and team-oriented and comes from so many different places and input and all that kind of thing. That the material, uh, good material, I think, especially in my job, um, is very rarely only from me. And so with that in mind, I don't get super connected to it, knowing that things are going to change, knowing that even in the field, things that you thought were going to happen and things that you thought were feasible or were, were planned on all fall to hell because of reasons. It could be weather, it could be acts of God, whatever it is. So I don't feel super connected because the more connected uh, you are to a material, I think you lose some fluidity, you lose some adaptability, you lose the ability to to change and that 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 is that is the most resourcefulness and adaptability and flexibility have got to be the key ingredients to working on sets period no matter what discipline you're in whether you're a camera guy a lighting guy an audio guy stage you know production whatever even even in studio situations in news whatever it is you have got to be able to when things go wrong as they inevitably always will that's the only thing you can really count on you have to also be able to count on yourself to adjust, accommodate, and act. Very interesting. And you did say something that I want to just touch on really quickly, or you mentioned you can't prepare for acts of God, which, though, is a real production thing. Um, what is the, the Latin term? Anyone know? Deus ex machina. Well, no. That's when God comes, comes in and saves you. Yeah. No, but there is... Which a... I've also been on the receiving ends of those. <laughs> but Sometimes of... it's just the shoot gets canceled, and it's like, oh, Deus Ex Machina, thank God. <laughs> like, we just avoided the iceberg entirely. But Acts of God is also something that's built into a lot of insurances, like on contracts. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm more like talking about. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, the... Um, the Don Quixote movie that uh, Terry Gilliam tried to make. There was a massive flood, and they lost so much gear. And it was not covered in their insurance because the flood was considered an act of God. That's interesting. Yeah. So, like, yeah. an act of God is, like, it's something we do say on set a lot because it is actually a part of set. Like, something could go so wrong that we are, that no one is in control of. Yeah, sometimes it, it feels like you can, you can feel the hand of God himself making sure the shoot doesn't go right. You just He's feel that middle finger coming up. Just, there, was a, there was a moment, now this was not an, an, uh, a hand of God, but this was my own stupidity. I was pushing a cart full of water up a hill, and I thought it would be funny to do, look, ma, no hands. And immediately the cart, almost as soon as I let it go. <laughs> it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't have happened. It, it definitely very easily could have happened. It physically should not have happened as quickly as it did, Almost as soon as I let go of that cart, the whole thing toppled and the ice and the drinks and everything just went all over and right down the hill just as, as the whole crew was coming around the corner to watch it all happen in slow motion. Yeah, um, that's and, the Larry that I know. Yeah, and that the, the great moment, that was uh, Dana, the production manager, looked at me and she goes, you know what you did, right? 
I went, yep. And I that was that was it. That was that moment of like coaching, like like that's when I stopped trying to be funny on set and just started focusing on doing my job a little bit better. That was a big, that was a big moment for me. But now you learn from those moments. Yes, but then there's also times where, you know, I've you you get you get opportunities to deliver, in weird acts of God. You know, like you want. There's moments when you can become. The act of God, too, I think. And that's the moments that really you get to keep your job and you get to get booked on the next gig. Like one time I had to wrangle a bunch of drunk Brazilians running down a street with a cake. And this is another cake story. I have a lot of cake stories, which is weird. <laughs> um, they were all drunk and we needed to... Just to uh, clarify, your first job was for Buddy Velastro, the cake boss, correct? No, I've never worked with Cake Boss. <laughs> have I ever worked with Cake Boss? I don't think cake I've ever boss. worked with Cake Boss, no. Um, but they were they were drunk and they took they took the cake out of the box and started running down the street freehand with a cake. So, question. So I had to wrangle the Were they on set or yeah. did they just break in and yeah, steal the, a cake? So, so the, other thing, the thing about it is, too, is you work with some incredible crews, especially when you get to work with international crews and some places, like, we all think of television from an American standard. Well, that's not the case with a lot of other places. Like, like the, the Japanese have their own way of shooting television. The British have their own way of shooting television. My favorite way of shooting television uh, was a team with a bunch of, I think they were Hungarian or Bulgarian. I don't exactly remember where they were from, but they would just set the camera. It was very Cinema Verde, <laughs> and they would set the camera, and what the camera shot is what the camera shot. They didn't want crowd control. They didn't want their, their interviewers to, to really even be looking at the camera or paying attention or looking at the same thing the whole time. It was just set the camera up, let the camera roll, and that's what the shot is. And so we were shooting in a crowded street, and there were just people walking in front of the talent, walking around the tip, bumping the talent. Like, it was just, like, they, it, it literally was, like, we could have easily tried to, like, block off traffic a little bit or at least circumnavigating traffic so it was a consistent flow behind them, that kind of thing. And I just went, ah, screw it. You know, to hell with it. Whatever, whatever happens to these people happens. And so the talent were getting, like, pushed around and, and kind of bumped. And I think somebody drops out of frame when his phone drops out of his hand and he's they're, they're scrolling through their phone <laughs> as they're doing the interview it was just so nonchalant and it made for a great shoot because all the problems that you usually try to account for in production were all in play they yeah. said it's all it's fine whatever happens happens and that was great that was phenomenal it seems from working on that shoot that would be amazing yeah uh, watching that shoot that's the, and they're like no this is good this is good Miserable. TV they said because well, they said how are they going to know that this place is crowded and worth going to if they don't see the crowd it was um, a very interesting, yeah, it was like a... It's just a different perspective yeah. on television as a whole. Worth going to or worth avoiding at all costs? Well, that's you, Deandra. The that Hungarians are happy people. That is 100% me. Question, so should we go to Hungary and search their TV? I'm sure you could just do that on YouTube. <laughs> I'm sure if you Google Hungary. more economical. Wait, <laughs> my <laughs> flight that I just booked to Hungary, Hungary is not Also, I'm not guaranteeing... Is that refundable? <laughs> they could be Belgian. Damn it! Or Bulgarian, I threw out too. That wasn't even the other example that I used earlier. I forget exactly where these people are from. I'll have this to go back trip is going to cost me a fortune. It's going to, oh yeah, very expensive. Thank you so much for telling us like all about a lot of your production beginnings, some funny stories, ugly parents, and a lot of pancakes. You've already reached this very successful level that you're at now, and you're working nonstop, obviously. But is there any place in particular you're hoping to go or hoping to reach? Like, what are your production dreams? Admittedly, nothing right now because I'm working on commercials and I love it, and I'm writing commercials and I, you know, I get to shoot them and all that kind of stuff. So that's great. So it's it's a good job. There's not really any job, I think I could walk into right now that you could give me. So especially knowing the the industry. But realistically speaking, eventually I would love to write 
a feature and work on a feature and, and maybe an animated feature and continue to work. I love working in kids entertainment. So to continue that tradition and, and to keep working on bigger and better things as far as that goes and bigger, even shooting bigger events, although I don't really like working in live events. So that's a, that's bad. And so working on bigger and better things within kids entertainment uh, is the next goal. But that and maybe possibly owning my own production company to enabled me to do those bigger projects. But that's that's a, a down the line thing. I got student loans. I got bills, man. I got kids. I don't have kids. No wife, uh, no kids. No wife, no kids. Find them on Instagram. Um, but it's it's that's a that's a, a long term goal and I think I'm not ready. I don't have enough business savvy. I don't have the network. I don't have the contacts. I don't have I will know, much like I knew when the time was to leave Orlando and when it was a natural time to start looking for new jobs, eventually there's gonna be a you know, that feeling in my bone marrow that tells me to start branching out on my own and start kind of bracing for uh, something bigger and better at the next step. But right now, it's, it's continuing to learn, continuing to keep chugging, and continuing to do better work. Thank you so much for, and that's a fantastic answer. It's like, really is. Uh, as someone who yeah, is I know, personally... That's why I said it. God, you make me trying to be fucking polite to you. I know, so difficult. I know, that's what I don't and like, this yeah. is staying in here. Because I was about to be sincere and say right. thank you when for you teaching me so much. But screw it. I stole from everyone else. Yeah. It's barely you. Not no, it's not me. true. No, I owe right. a lot of I've... everything I do right now. It's Listen, Danny, if there's one smart thing in your career, never give me credit. Just don't. Just take from me, but never never throw it back to me. 100% accurate. Don't ever give him a compliment. Don't ever say anything nice to him. Don't ever say, I learned this from Larry. If his head gets any bigger, <laughs> we're not going to be able to handle him. Yeah. Well, on that note, Larry, thank you so much for coming. Uh, seriously, though, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Learning a lot and about I this. I thoroughly enjoy this, and I enjoy listening to other people's stories too. That's that's like that. It's the thing that you do at the happy hour when after you're offset. What does everybody do? They go back to the bar and they start swapping war stories. Everyone's got one. Yeah. Um, speaking of war stories and children's TV, I know you have a very. Uh, interesting Sarah Hyland story yes. that maybe you could take us out on. The Sarah Hyland story is great. She's very nice. She's very sweet. She will not remember me, nor will she ever know me if this ever makes it back to her. She's going to hear this story and sue you. But <laughs> we were working on a shoot she where she was working with... <laughs> to take it back. <laughs> you can't just whisper that. You have to like... Just think of your edit point. Yeah, please get I rid of that. I think she point. has Crohn's. Start over. I'm gonna Google that as I tell the story. I think she had something. It was like she, she had, had like half of something. something. She had like half. I think she's anemic or something. I literally just took like, 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 a mouthful of water right before you said that. I Sarah Highland is my celebrity crush. <laughs> Rightfully so. Sarah, if you're listening, Dave will help you deal with your Crohn's disease. No, I'm not a doctor. I don't want to pretend. She needed a second kidney. You have to get rid of this because I'm about to tell a story about her. So, but yeah. it's a kidney condition, so it's not Crohn's. Wishing you the best. Uh, uh, anyway, so you, you have so a anyway, yes, the Sarah Highland story, the Harris, Sarah Highland story. Uh, I was working on a shoot where Sarah Highland was working with a bunch of kids um, for it was for a uh, Blu-ray extra extended content, and the kids, as kids tend to do on set. They get a lot of breaks. They get uh, union schooling. They, there's a lot of rules and regulations, which is another challenge with working with kids. And all the kids were offset at this moment, and Sarah wanted to rehearse her lines, and they figured, well, if she nails it, it's, it's a close-up. We can get some shots to cover it. So they needed to throw somebody in who looked like a kid, and being the youngest on the set, as usual, besides her, they all looked at me and said, Larry, jump in where the kids were. And so they gave me, threw me a script, and I sat about probably closer than you and I are to Sarah Highland and got to look into her eyes as she was running lines. And at one point, I definitely did get distracted just by, like, the... Like, she's a very, very beautiful girl in real life. 
and I remember as I walked over, like the, it happened so quick that I took my phone and there was another guy, Jay, who was working on set with me. And as I'm walking up to the set, I threw my phone on the ground towards him and it landed like four feet like away from me. Like it wasn't, I tried to be discreet about it, but everybody like knew what I was. And I kind of went, as I'm walking, I went, pictures as I'm walking over uh, to get them. So I have a couple pictures, but then the director sat down next to, the in between the two of us to give her some direction. And so now he's kind of blocking like half of her stuff. But she was she was very funny. I got to make her laugh um, with the stuff on the script and my reactions and that the kind of thing. Then they told me to stop making her laugh because they, they're actually <laughs> rolling on all this and they need the coverage. So it was a, it was a fun story, but she was very, very nice. Uh, and I enjoyed that shoot thoroughly and uh, specifically working with her. It's a time when your charming nature isn't always beneficial. Yes. For a set, yes. For trying to get Sarah Hyland's number, the charming. It wasn't great. Yeah. And yeah. her boyfriend at the time, and I think they've broken up since, was like half my size. I could have. There's not a lot of guys I'm sure I could <laughs> kick his ass, but I could kick his ass. <laughs> I could have broken him over my right leg. Are you sure it was the boyfriend or just not one of the kids on set? It was, yeah, that's, <laughs> honestly, if there was somebody you should have stood in, it should have been him, yeah. But hey, I'm glad I took that guy's job. And they broke up like within like a month or two after. I was like, man, different in alternate universe. I'm dating an alternate Sarah Highland. Thank you, Larry. I really appreciate you. That is it. That's the inaugural episode of Tales from the Set. I'm your host, Danny. I'm your other host, Deandra. Yeah. AKA Madonna. And I'm just happy to be here. That's Larry. Thank you guys very much. Signing off. We'll see you next time. Bye. See ya. <laughs> Thanks,